I think with a lot of things in medicine, pay attention to what's going on at the bedside. There are lots of things that are just a clinical diagnosis, putting things together, putting the puzzle together. Hospital-acquired pneumonia is no different. Just be sure to look for all the pieces. Welcome back to Pete's Grit. I'm Zach Hodges, a pediatric ICU fellow from UT Southwestern in Dallas. And I'm Alice Shanklin, a critical care fellow in Washington, D.C. Alice, remind our listeners what we do here at Pete's Grit. Absolutely. Pete's Grit is an educational PICU podcast. We are looking for the pediatric intensivists with the best bedside teaching pearls. We're trying to record them and put them on the air. Zach, who are we talking with today? Today, we are so fortunate to speak with Dr. Sam Davila. Sam is an associate professor of pediatrics here at UT Southwestern. He completed both his pediatric infectious disease and critical care fellowships at Washington University at St. Louis Children's Hospital. He's now a practicing pediatric infectious disease specialist and intensivist here at UT Southwestern and Children's Medical Center, Dallas. His professional and research interests include cardiovascular infections, cardiac ECMO, post-heart transplant infections, and he also does time on the antimicrobial stewardship committee. He's a great specialist for this particular topic, ventilator-associated pneumonia. Yes. Zach, I cannot believe you have a cardiac intensivist who is also a pediatric ID physician, UT Southwestern. What a place. And today we are talking about the perfect topic for him. We've been wanting to cover ventilator-associated pneumonia for a while, and it's really tough to hit both the ID stewardship perspective and the blood on my hands intensivist perspective. And so we're so excited to have him on. Yes, Sam does a great job encapsulating both what this patient looks like to an infectious disease physician and to the intensivist. Let's get right to the content. Welcome back to Pete's Crit. We are so excited to have Dr. Sam Davila with us today to discuss this important topic. Sam, get us started. Please tell our listeners about yourself and what you do, and feel free to include something you enjoy outside of medicine. So I have been practicing critical care for eight years now as an attending um, after fellowship. I started doing a combination of cardiac critical care and infectious diseases, and now I just focus my time mostly on cardiac critical care and then do some time as an ID doc. Outside of work, I usually just spend time with my family. I have an eight and nine-year-old. I cart them to basketball, piano, and esports, which I didn't even know was a thing, but that yeah, they enjoy that. Uh, And then I, I like to cook. Oh, nice. You're literally the perfect person to talk about ventilator-associated pneumonia. Why did you decide to dual train in both PEDS ID and PICU? Yeah, I think we all just have to follow our passions in life. And I really was in love with ID, the way people think. And they were just kind of my people, but critical care people were also my people. So it just kind of fell out naturally. I like the way both groups of people think. ID people tend to be really thoughtful, very detail-oriented, but so are critical care doctors, but in kind of different ways. And then critical care doctors get to do some quick thinking too, which is kind of fun. Yeah. Tell our listeners, what's it like practicing both ID and critical care? What does your time look like? So I spend almost a full FTE using academic speak in the cardiac ICU, and then I do four weeks a year of ID. And then in my non-clinical time, I do handshake stewardship in all of the ICUs. And then I do committee work with stewardship, infection prevention and control, and then through hospital-acquired condition infection committees. Oh, wow. I imagine that having a cardiac intensivist and intensivist doing the handshake stewardship would be the most effective form. Yeah. I don't know. I wonder what it looks like when my partners in ID do it and how it looks differently, Mm -hmm. Um, because it really is my friends that I'm talking to, so it's pretty casual conversation. Yeah, yeah. 
Sure. And just being as a trainee and hearing from you as the stewardship, I guess, provider, it certainly is helpful knowing that you understand everything that we're going through as an ICU team when you make these recommendations. I think that's really helpful. Yeah. It's always weird to make recommendations for people who are sick. Yeah. All right. Perfect. Well, let's get things started with a case for you. We've got a six-month-old X28-week premature infant admitted to the PICU with respiratory failure secondary to an RSV infection. She requires intubation and mechanical ventilation. After five days, she begins to improve. After two days of clinical improvement, she develops worsening hypoxemia and a new fever. Leukocytosis above 12,000 is noted on morning labs. We've got an x-ray concerning for a new infiltrate. Blood, urine, lower respiratory cultures are obtained. So we've given you a lot to work with here. When we talk about ventilator-associated pneumonia, it's sort of a conversation about as the intensivist, how am I diagnosing and treating it? And then on the other side, as a very North American U.S. quality metric, how are we defining this? And how do we start with the broad definition and really get down into, I'm treating a ventilator-associated pneumonia, this affects my treatment, and I have a ventilator-associated pneumonia, this affects sort of quality metrics? Yeah, I think that's a really good question that you have. So there's a lot of literature focused on creating a research definition or a definition that allows you to track data over time for hospital-acquired infection tracking purposes and minimizing risk to patients. And those are very distinct and different from what you do as a human being taking care of another human being at the bedside. I think all of the diagnoses kind of revolve around several different things, and that is some combination of fever, inflammation, respiratory symptoms, or pathology, lung mechanic change, and then some infectious marker. And I think we use those combinations to help create this clinical diagnosis. You know, there's that old adage that you know it when you see it. Pneumonia is one of those things. Tracheitis and other related conditions are harder to put in buckets, but I think the ultimate thing is you know it when you see it. As a trainee, do you think we should understand exactly what a ventilator-associated condition is? Do you think that's really important for us at the bedside? As a trainee, maybe not. But as you enter into your attending hood, I think it's important because there are things that are tracked and measured. And in some institutions, you might get your individualized data for Mm. how many catheter-related UTIs you're involved with, ventilator-associated pneumonias, CLABSIs, so on and so forth, or what your antibiotic choices are like. So I think it's important to kind of have some framework. Ventilator-associated events are kind of a broad bucket, and then it goes down to conditions and then so on and so forth, where it's kind of this tree that ultimately filters down to is there a pneumonia or not. Mm. And just broadly speaking, it seems like to get in a ventilator-associated event or a ventilator-associated condition, there has to be a worsening in oxygenation or some other marker respiratory health. How would you actually define that? You know, at the bedside, I think it's pretty easy to kind of understand your patient's trajectory. But from a literature perspective, a 20% change in FiO2 or a PEEP change of three or more over a period of time, usually several days, is what that means. At the bedside, I think you have more information in your hands, but generally that's what you're seeing in the formal definitions. At the bedside, you have additional information like what is your pulmonary compliance doing and how is that changing moment to moment? And is the overall trend worse or is something different happening? Nice. And even though one is from the National Healthcare Safety Network, the NHSN, and the other is your clinical care of the patient, they both reflect this patient was intubated for a different reason. They were getting better. They're getting worse. This is a reflection of your care of the intubated patient, whether it's managing secretions, preventing aspiration, things like that. Yeah. I mean, to diagnose pneumonia in the first place, you want to have that, that they come in with the same symptoms, 
But if they're getting better or staying the same for 48 hours and then they get worse, that is what brings in the hospital acquired portion of that definition. Mm -hmm. I think you can generally use the same terms to describe both forms of pneumonia, the one that the patient comes in with and the one that they might acquire in a hospital. Sure. We talked a lot about the background of ventilator-associated conditions. Let's get right to the meat of our topic today. You know, what exactly is ventilator-associated pneumonia? How do we define that at the bedside? How is it defined in the literature? I think the bedside definition is the most practical and useful, and there's not really a place where that definition is written down. But I can tell you what I do and what I think about. So I do these handshake stewardship calls, and we see the exact patient that you described. And when I'm looking through the chart, I look and see if they have a leukocytosis. I look if they have a left shift or bandemia to understand levels of inflammation, or if there's high-grade fevers. Those are all tell me, you know, I'm in the general realm of infection. Then I look for some form of respiratory symptom. So do they describe upper or lower respiratory symptoms? Usually I'm looking for lower respiratory symptoms like coughing or dyspnea or work of breathing. You can look at the physical exam findings. If there's a focal finding on physical exam, that certainly points towards pneumonia. Then the definition kind of gets further, and I look at the radiographic findings. Are they calling infiltrate on chest X-ray? I think sometimes radiologists, they don't know the necessarily the implications of the exact words that they write in the report. But when you're looking at that report, is this lobar or is this perihilar or is this interstitial? Mm-hmm. I think when you see evidence of lobar pneumonia, that makes it really easy. Usually they use those words. But sometimes they'll say peribronchial infiltrates, which in my mind is more of a viral process. But when they use those words, sometimes it gets confusing to the end user of that report and pushes you toward a bacterial pneumonia diagnosis rather than a viral pneumonia diagnosis. Other things that I use kind of as adjuncts, I use inflammatory markers. Again, that's just evidence of inflammation. You know, you think I'm an intensivist and I just want to focus on a tracheal aspirate, but really that's not part of my definition of pneumonia or tracheitis kind of my soapbox at the bedside is it's a clinical diagnosis. There's not one test that defines it. Just to make a comparison, Kawasaki's is a syndrome, right? You count up signs and symptoms and that forms the diagnosis, but we don't know what causes it. We know that it's bad. We know the prognosis, but we make the diagnosis by counting up signs and symptoms and pneumonia is the same. So just because I have a lot of PMNs on a tracheal aspirate doesn't define that that person has a tracheitis or pneumonia. Similarly, the presence of organisms on that same sample doesn't define a tracheitis or pneumonia. You have to put all the pieces together. I think that's the most common thing that I encounter when I'm at the bedside trying to do handshake stewardship and advising someone like, what are you actually seeing? What are you actually worried about? You know, these definitions that you see in the literature, they do include information from lower respiratory tree, bronchoscopy, lung biopsy, all this stuff. I think that's all important, but they're very specific in the way that they define those things. So they're using quantitative measurements from their sampling. They're using specific colony-forming unit counts. They are trying to acquire samples in very sterile fashion. There are techniques behind all these sampling methods. So I think it's really hard to interpret those things, especially in isolation. I think the definition of pneumonia and tracheitis really revolve around what's going on with the patient and not specifically with that one little test. When you look at the diagnosis of those things in the literature, it's kind of a cascade. You have to have the respiratory symptoms and pathology before you get down to the test. The test is only part of the diagnosis. The very research definitions include colony-forming unit counts of the organisms. They include very specific measurements of how many neutrophils are on the sample, quantitative methods. Whereas in the clinical practice, we usually use semi-quantitative methods. There's mild, Mm -hmm. moderate, or abundant growth of this or that, or there's mild, moderate, or abundant PMNs. 
their semi-quantitative method. So it's not exactly the same as you might see in the literature, which makes it hard at the bedside when you're trying to decide what to do with the patient. Oh, yeah. As the primary intensivist, you're clinically convinced you've sort of put things together. For example, our six-month-old with RSV was improving, now backsliding, chest x-ray looks concerning, inflammatory markers up. You are convinced. How do you shift the weight that you put onto the tracheal aspirate then? In my clinical practice, I usually use it as a tiebreaker or how to expand the differential diagnosis in terms of the microbiology. Mm. So let's say I have a patient who maybe they didn't have a 38.5 fever, but they had a 38.2 and they have maybe an infiltrate on chest x-ray. It's kind of a soft call. The radiologist calls it, but when you look at the film, it's not that impressive. And their white count's like, maybe it's right at that border, the 12 that you described in your case presentation. I might use the tracheal aspirate in that instance and say, well, you know what, there's abundant PMNs and there's abundant growth of one isolated pathogen, a known pathogen on the sampling. And in that case, I would probably be more focused on treating that specific infection and calling it pneumonia. Mm. How sure are we that a lower respiratory tract culture is sensitive enough to pick up a pathogen that's causing a pneumonia? Is it reliable or not so much? That's a really hard question to answer because the gold standard really is the clinician diagnosis. And the way that's defined in research studies is whether or not the physician who's caring for the patient changes or adds antibiotics. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a little bit circular. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know exactly how to answer your question. The sensitivity and specificity of these very precise research definitions, the one that will be included in some of the references for this, are somewhere in the 70 to 90% sensitivity uh, specificity range, but really they are these very precise measurements. There are some institutions, rather than just doing a low respiratory culture where you're basically sampling from the very direct end of the ET tube, that you actually do what some places called a blind BAL or a mini BAL, where there is a out-of-line suction catheter that's passed as far as it will go without resistance, but without actually seeing it on fluoroscopy, for example, and getting a sample that way. So very different method, and I would probably interpret those findings with more rigor, lower threshold to call something pneumonia from those sampling techniques, but it's always hard to know exactly what to do. That's interesting. I didn't actually know about the blind suction techniques that people use to identify potential pathogens. Yeah, I personally haven't used that in D.C. We don't do it here routinely. We didn't do it at WashU, but I've heard of other places in Texas where it's their standard of care. Well, oh, that's yeah. neat. In reading some of the literature coming up to our conversation today, it seems that for the diagnosis of ventilator-associated pneumonia, there needs to be initial presentation, patient gets better, patient gets worse. Do you see ventilator-associated pneumonia the same way in your practice? I would say so, kind of biphasic illness. In my cardiac world, I definitely think that's true because they're coming to my ICU with a cardiac diagnosis and not usually respiratory failure. It's a little bit harder in the PICU because they'll come in potentially with some finding on chest x-ray and that may not change, but the patient clinically gets better or vice versa. The x-ray gets better, but the patient stays the same. And then there's some worsening of something and it's hard to sort out. And that's where you have to use adjuncts like your white blood cell count, inflammatory markers, and also take that into context of what antibiotics they're on and how the coverage with those antibiotics changes the potential differential diagnosis of what organisms they're at risk for. When we've got these patients, I feel like often the diagnosis of tracheitis doesn't elude me if a patient who's trach invent dependent comes in because you can really differentiate, is this primary lung disease or is this a secretion issue? But when you're taking care of these patients who just came in and are now intubated, how do you at the bedside, besides the radiographic findings, say, okay, maybe we should treat a pneumonia versus a tracheitis, or do you see that distinction is not very important? 
I don't think it's super important. The duration of therapy difference that I would usually use between the two is a very small difference. Usually for tracheitis, I'm only treating for five days, whereas pneumonia, I would treat for seven or more. And I think we'll get into that a little bit later. I think it is hard to determine in some situations. Tracheitis should be really more of an upper respiratory disease process, whereas pneumonia is a lower respiratory disease process. And so because it's a lower respiratory disease process, I think of a change in lung mechanics. So looking at your pulmonary compliance and how that's changing over time, especially in relationship to x-ray or you know other things that are going on with your patient, their temperature curve, response to antibiotics in terms of leukocytosis, all that kind of helps you understand what's going on. I want to ask you about pathogens we should worry about. So a patient comes in previously healthy, they have pneumonia, we're worried about, you know, strep pneuma, H flu, Moraxella, kind of garden variety bacteria. If this patient has what we think is ventilator associated pneumonia, what pathogens are you worried about? I generally think about more hospital acquired organisms. So those are the big and the bad. But I think, for example, for the question that you just posed for this RSV bronchiolytic who comes in and has a super infection, I don't always jump to hospital acquired organisms. It really depends a lot on the host. So if we're dealing with a patient who came from the community with a respiratory process, who's kind of your run-of-the-mill patient, and they develop pneumonia in close proximity to their admission to the hospital, maybe it is the two days, but like they were dehydrated, we're we're seeing something evolve. Mm -hmm. I still go to my baseline therapies for community-acquired pneumonia. I use ampicillin or amoxicillin for those sorts of patients. These are normal hosts. If there are patients who are frequent flyers, immune-compromised hosts, And I even would throw patients who have chronic lung disease, but especially with features like bronchiectasis, where there's dead space that just is kind of potentially forming biofilm, the same model that you would think of with CF. I do think about different organisms in those patients, and I use their own personal microbiologic history to help guide how I would choose empiric therapy, for example. Mm -hmm. Like if we could scroll back in the cultures of this X28 weaker that we're talking about now, you could maybe... Exactly. If they're now six years old, I wouldn't use their NICU course to help you necessarily. But the last few months in a trached patient might be helpful to understand if they have an acinetobacter and they're failing therapy on ceftriaxone. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think those things are helpful. This might be a good time to just go and jump into what your general empiric therapy might be. And it might be helpful if we actually delineate maybe a previously healthy patient who comes into the ICU for another reason outside of a respiratory infection who gets a ventilator cystic pneumonia and then contrast that maybe with a patient who has chronic medical complexity. Yeah. So I think like the patient I just described, the normal patient who comes in with bronchiolitis and has a super infection, I do think about strep pneumo. And so I'll just start with ampicillin. If they're failing therapy, or perhaps maybe they had influenza, or there's some evidence of necrotizing pneumonia on x-ray, or they're just failing to respond after several days of antibiotics, then I think about just kind of regular staff or MRSA. I think about adding drugs towards that end. In our particular antibiogram, Clinda and Bactrim remain reasonable options for those. Clinda gets a little staph and strep pneumo coverage, whereas Bactrim's a little lighter on the strep, but usually you've already treated that. There is some resistant strep pneumo, so you do have to think about escalating to ceftriaxone on a lot of these patients. There was a paper a long time ago now, I'm forgetting what group it was from, but looked at using combination therapy with vancomycin and clindamycin for patients with necrotizing pneumonia from MRSA. And a lot of people use that paper as evidence to say that you should be using both in patients with MRSA pneumonia. But what gets forgotten from that paper is that all of the isolates that they have in that paper are susceptible to clindamycin. And clindamycin is a drug that gets good penetration to the lungs, whereas vancomycin does not. Of course, the patients who got a drug that actually gets into the space of interest did well because it got into the space of interest. But they use that as evidence that you should have dual therapy. 
I think in different communities, there's also different options for staff coverage like doxycycline or other things. But our community here in the Dallas area, we usually have good success with clindamycin for those patients with MRSA pneumonia. We're getting into the more chronic patient, trach vented or a CF patient. I do think about Pseudomonas, Acinetobacter, things like that, potentially AMPC type organisms. And so I'll think about Cefepime as primary therapy. And then if they have known history of MRSA or if they have a positive MRSA nasal PCR, I'll think about it. And then I won't think about it if they have a negative MRSA nasal PCR. The respiratory viral panel that we use here at our institution has reasonable sensitivity for mycoplasma. Some people in school-age children, usually 5 to 10 years of age, will use that as empiric therapy. But the PCR really isn't bad, and so we often would encourage de-escalation if that's not detected. Alternatively, some people use specific PCR for mycoplasma to understand if they should add that to their armamentarium. Interesting. A couple of quick follow-up questions. Let's consider the patient who's not an extremist, but is critically ill, is intubated. Say they have chronic medical complexity. Would you empirically provide pseudomonal coverage if they had no history of pseudomonas? Or would you require a history of pseudomonas in a culture before you would provide that empirically? No, I think that's a good question. So I think what you're describing potentially is a patient who has kind of sepsis-like features in addition to pneumonia. And when you have sepsis and associated with any condition, you treat the primary cause. However, you want drugs that are specifically focused surrounding bacteremia because that is kind of one potentially complication of that primary infection, or it could be the isolated infection. And in those patients, you want a drug that is bactericidal. So I often would advocate for using drugs like cefepime for pseudomonal coverage or AMC coverage if you have a patient where you're really focused on treating sepsis and ruling out sepsis before kind of going to more standard pneumonia therapies. Similarly, vancomycin is a good treatment for bacteremia, whereas clindamycin is not because it's static. So if you have a septic patient with pneumonia, I think it's reasonable to start off with some vancomycin if they have these sepsis-like features and then kind of de-escalate from there. Interesting. This is meaningful for me because I, as a bad habit, probably are differentiating sick and not sick as opposed to bacteremic and not bacteremic when I think about my choice of empiric antibiotic, especially for immersive pneumonia. If you're sitting in front of a patient and they're not on pressors, you've maybe got a negative culture 18, 24 hours from the blood, but the vent settings are escalating and you're starting to consider maybe VV ECMO from a MRSA pneumonia. In my mind, that's vank, but I'm wondering if it's inappropriate and I should be thinking, Clinda, because they're not bacteremic, you'll penetrate the lung, it's fine. Yeah, I mean, it somewhat depends what your community antibiogram looks like. Mm -hmm. But I would say, just look sick. I don't think that's a good way to phrase things in your interaction with your stewardship team. For example, I would say that your patient is persistently tachycardic with borderline blood pressures and you're worried about bacteremia, that you have additional cultures pending, or that cultures at 24 hours are helpful, high probability of no infection, but we do use 48 hours for a reason, 99% probability of no bacteremia at that time. So I think there's ways to think about these sorts of patients, but kind of going to some diagnostics. If you're really worried about MRSA as being the pneumonia, negative MRSA nasal PCR has a high predictive value, meaning that if it's negative, it's highly unlikely that your patient has a MRSA pneumonia. There's now meta-analyses and other things that really support that practice and so can be really helpful in these acute patients. But I think other things to worry about are really very patient-specific. You know, has this patient grown a lot of MRSA in the past? What are their risk factors? You know, did they just get chemotherapy? Sure. Yeah. It certainly changes things. 
So Sam, something you, you may be aware of, just our institution uh, being here for a year and a half at this point, I find that patients who have chronic medical complexity, who have perhaps a neurologic condition, we're always worried about aspiration and we will not uncommonly cover with anaerobic antimicrobials. But as I kind of reflect over my time, I don't recall many respiratory cultures turning positive for anaerobic bugs. So I just want you to speak to the role of anaerobic coverage in some of these patients and kind of what are some possible best practices? Yeah, so I think there's lots of different approaches to these sorts of patients. And we tend to err towards stewardship at our institution, which is essentially if there's a known aspiration, we still would like to see the patient sort of display some sort of symptomatology that leads you down that pneumonitis or pneumonia pathway. And we generally do use anaerobic coverage in those patients, whether in the form of unison, if we have a reassuring MRSA nasal PCR, or conversely, use clindamycin otherwise. The cultures that we obtain, they're not set up in anaerobic conditions. They're set up in aerobic conditions, and we happen to occasionally grow facultative aerobes. And so sometimes you'll see those pathogens pop up on culture, but it is very rare. Um, Mm. So we're not really looking for them is kind of the answer to your question. It's really about clinical diagnosis and clinical patterns. I think sometimes I modify that in my own practice. If I have a patient who's extremely high risk, for example, the patient who is scoliotic, who you never know what a normal chest x-ray looks for in their white count and inflammatory markers are kind of at a border range and any potential infection could entertain the idea of VV ECMO. My threshold is probably a little bit lower in those patients to go on some therapy, but you know that's a more practical explanation of that process. So in addition to IV antibiotics, is there really any role for inhaled antibiotics? I know this is something that's used in the CF population, but considering outside of them. Yeah, the short answer to your question is probably not. If you ask the pure ID doctor, they would say, no, never. If you ask an intensivist, they would probably tell you, you know, in all the chronic patients who have a tracheostomy, what does a little tobermycin hurt? But I think inhaled antibiotics can be useful in the right patient population. I usually do use them as an adjunct. So I'll put them on some primary therapy with whatever and use an inhaled aminoglycoside as adjunctive therapy. Not every patient. Kind of like the patient I described before where you don't really know what's going on completely. They're flirting with going on ECMO or they're flirting with toxic ventilator settings, for example. Uh, Those are patients I might add an adjunctive therapy. Completely not evidence-based, but it is my practice to use it occasionally. Mm -hmm. I think there's some patients, too, who could benefit, who demonstrate recurrent infections with specific organisms and MICs for those organisms to the various inhaled aminoglycosides. And I have kind of used preventative therapy. Again, that's a little bit voodoo, but something that we do sometimes. I can think of patients who have that as well. Also from, this is probably naughty, but um, from a uh, stewardship perspective, I don't mind burning out an aminoglycoside because I'll never use it independently for a a treatment. Um, Interesting. (laughs) All the nephrologists, thank you for just getting rid of aminoglycosides. Who who needs kidneys? Yeah. 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 (laughs) Um, So I think if you are sort of looking up specifically the ventilated associated pneumonia, you might start broad, narrow quickly. How do you change your practice to narrow antibiotics? Because it sounds like you have a pretty thoughtful and narrow empiric approach to the common ventilator-associated pneumonias. Yeah, this is a place where, as I described earlier, the tracheal aspirate or lower respiratory culture can be helpful to expand your differential diagnosis microbiologically. So if I see a pseudomonas that wasn't there before, it's really easy to you know change your antibiotics to focus on that. And I do use that to help me also narrow If there's only a pseudomonas when you look at the plate in the lab, then it's pretty easy to kind of say, we probably don't need the baropenem, this drug is susceptible, and there's nothing else Mm -hmm. on the plate that is really growing. 
I think those things are helpful. And just really just using common sense things, looking at your patient. Are they getting better? Is the fever coming down? Is the white count changing? What are the inflammatory markers? You know, we have all these special tools, but really I think it's just being a good clinician and just looking at your patient. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the core learning point thus far in a conversation. All this is a clinical diagnosis. It's not just one lab value. It's the history, the physical exam, the chest x-ray, ancillary testing, but really look at the patient in front of you. Yep, definitely. Let's say you have that patient that's somewhat marginal. You decide to give them a course of antibiotics for a ventilator-associated pneumonia, but that low respiratory culture comes back as mixed respiratory flora. Would you stop antibiotics at that point? No. I mean, based on exactly the thing we talked about, if I've made a clinical diagnosis of pneumonia, I've made a clinical diagnosis of pneumonia. It does help me, like, I'm not going to give that patient cefepime. They're probably going to get to ampicillin and some community-acquired therapy treatment. If they're failing to progress on whatever they're on, then that's a situation where I might think about a deeper respiratory culture, or if it's an immune-compromised host, think about organisms that are fastidious or hard to really culture in the lab. That brings up a good point. Maybe thinking about individual pathogens, if you identify them in a patient that you think has pneumonia and you see it on the respiratory culture, let's talk about duration of therapy. So thinking about pseudomonas, staph, and others that you've mentioned so far. My response is really simple, actually. It's about the primary disease process. It's not necessarily about the organism. So it's really five days for tracheitis is what we generally use here in our institution. Seven days for pneumonia, unless there is complicated pneumonia. And what I mean by that is perineumonic infusions that aren't disappearing, empyema, lung abscess, evidence of necrotizing pneumonia, things like that. Mm. Nice. So maybe you don't focus on the pseudomonal. I feel like I've read papers about, you know, pseudomonal pneumonia has got to get 14 days and things of that nature. No, that's really fallen by the wayside. And, and that really was more specific to kind of CF populations where those organisms were first described. Oh, um, and so it's really hold out from that. And, you know, there's this idea of double coverage of those organisms as well. And that's really not a primary practice anymore. In CF, occasionally that is used, but that's more because of uh, potential biofilm formation. And even then, there's some literature that doesn't support that practice. Nice. If you're treating pseudomonas, usually my context is in chronic tracheostomy-dependent patients coming in with tracheitis for these bugs. But if you're treating pseudomonas, do you follow the principle of not burning a bridge to home in a simple pneumonia in the same way, like avoiding Cipro, sticking with an IV only so that you can, or is that not as important to you? It's really not as important to me. I don't have a really good rationale. You know, I think just the more antibiotics you use, the more risk of resistance there is. And so just trying to focus on making the clinical diagnosis and not over-treating, I think, is the most important thing. I think there's a lot of kids who come in in the situation and maybe their secretions are changed a little bit, but like, is that real? Have we waited, you know, some amount of time so that we have some sense that it's real? I think using those just really practical clinical features really helps the most. So, so far in our discussion, you've given us a really practical and thoughtful approach to ventilator-associated pneumonia. I feel like you have unique insight in that you know what goes on in the mind of intensivists, but also that in an ID specialist. Are there any hard stops where you think, you know, the intensivist might want to reach out to an ID consultant in the management of this type of ventilator-associated pneumonia? Do you have any of those? Yeah, I think there are very specific places where it's really helpful to involve an ID doctor. Neonatal pneumonia, because the differential diagnosis, it's very different as compared to kind of your average patient, some strange organisms, strange treatments, things that you wouldn't necessarily think of first line. I think if it's a non-low bar pneumonia, specifically in an immune compromised host, 
So like more interstitial pattern, I think that's a reason to involve an ID doctor because the differential diagnosis for that is very different, you know, atypical organisms, but not just mycoplasma, Legionella. Uh, there's a lot of other organisms that you would think about. I'm going to kind of also throw tuberculosis in that. Technically it's pneumonia. It's, you know, pus within your lungs, but that has different features. I think immune compromised hosts, it's always good to involve the ID service, CF patients. They're really fun for the ID service, in my opinion, because you can put together all their past susceptibilities and try and find the perfect empiric regimen for them while waiting on their cultures. But sometimes it's really hard to put those pieces together. And Mm. so I think it's really helpful to get ID for those, especially when you're thinking about weird organisms like Burkholderia or Stenotrophomonas or other stuff. And then certainly if you have a patient who's just not progressing and you need to think about other ways to make the diagnosis, especially when, you know, you're staring at a patient who you're convinced has pneumonia. Nice. Sam, when you were at PICU fellow, knowing that this development of a secondary pneumonia is in some ways a reflection of your care of the intubated patient, this is generally a nursing bundle issue, right? Like we're keeping the kids at 30 degrees, things like that. But were there things that you did differently, like oh, let's not exchange the ET tube. Oh, I actually think that the nasal intubation, you know, I would maybe prefer an orotracheal. Like I'm wanting less saline down when we're doing like a big bag suction. Were there things that you changed to avoid ventilator-associated pneumonias or do you feel like you let the bundle happen and just focused on stabilizing your kids? I, for the most part, did just let the bundle happen. But for example, and it still kind of drives me nuts, if I see a patient with their toes above head level, I can never remember if that's Trendelenburg or reverse, but, you know, respiratory secretions are coming up and out. I always even would like personally change the orientation of their bed so that, you know, aspiration risk is lower. I like to make sure that the oral care is happening so that, you know, there's not colonization that's occurring, Mm -hmm. um, those sorts of things. You know, the literature doesn't support exchange of ED2 routinely for avoidance of tracheitis. There is literature in adults about like silver impregnated endotracheal tubes. And, you know, I've never like specifically said, oh, I really want to intubate this person with this specific tube to (laughs) avoid this. Yeah. yeah, yeah. This bougie tube. Yeah. I I haven't done quite that. Mm. Nice. Well, that's fair. We should bring in gold plate endotracheal tubes, though. I think that would be really really nice. You know what? It'd be a nice addition. Bedazzled. Status symbol. Bedazzled. Um, A question about bronchoscopy and other invasive sampling techniques. Is there any hard lines where you think, you know, we probably should get a lower respiratory culture or even even lower than our tracheal aspirates for a patient? Any particular clinical scenarios come to mind? I think about the immune compromised patient. I think about the patient on ECMO. Any patient in whom you're willing to take risks, and by that I don't mean like I'm a risk taker, but in the sense that the patient's condition is worsening so much that and it's so uncontrolled that you just need more information. Mm-hmm. Um the diagnostic utility of a bronchoscopy is imperfect. And so you really do have to weigh risks and benefits of a procedure like that. And your average person, bronchoscopy is really well tolerated. So it's all well and good if you need more information. The patient who's on 100% FiO2 on high BiPAP settings or like just got intubate, probably not the right time. Mm-hmm. Um, probably need to see if you can support the patient and let the dust settle a little bit. But bronchoscopy can be a useful addition. I have had situations, predominantly in immune-compromised hosts, where you actually want lung biopsy. Mm. Sometimes it's because of you want to be able to gram stain or do fungal staining on the tissue, but sometimes it's, is there something we're missing? Is there something weird about this part of lung? Is there evidence of, you know, some other disease process that we're not thinking about? Is there PJP living in there, for example? Mm. Nice. So, Sam, lots of good stuff here. I feel like when I think about what I, I know about 
pneumonia, ventilator-assisted pneumonia, almost 99% of that is at the bedside. And I can't really think of great resources that I've read and watched and listened to. Do you have anything you'd like to share for our listeners, maybe resources to check out to learn more about kind of the, maybe the ID perspective or some other more nuanced approach to pneumonia, ventilator-assisted pneumonia and related things? Yeah, I think the CDC has good information, as you would expect, about ventilator-associated conditions and how those are differentiated from broad just events to specifically pneumonia. There's European definitions and uh, societies related to that. And then the Policy Network has a group of people interested in ventilator-associated pneumonia, the VAIN group, V-A-I-N, and they publish a lot on this topic, specifically Doug Wilson things that he's mentioned on or things that he's authored are really good resources for this topic. I also think a really good resource is just your clinical microbiology lab. If you've never been to the clinical microbiology lab to see how a respiratory culture is set up and what they have to do to figure out what's going on there, it's really, it's an amazing thing. I know this is an audio podcast, but it would be really interesting to show you guys what actually happens in the lab. Oh, yeah. I don't feel like any good ID discussion can happen without a field trip to the microbio lab. So it's a fun place. Nice little pearl to throw in there. So Sam, we're moving towards the end of our conversation here. Really thank you so much for your time. I think there's so many practical bedside tips that we can use when we're taking care of the next patient in the PICU who's intubated, who maybe is worsening after initially improving you know, this conversation of, is it pneumonia? Gosh, I feel like we have the conversation 10 times a day, if not more. Mm-hmm. Anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners? If not, maybe highlight something that you want us to remember. I think with a lot of things in medicine, pay attention to what's going on at the bedside. There are lots of things that are just a clinical diagnosis, putting things together, putting the puzzle together. Hospital-acquired pneumonia is no different. Just be sure to look for all the pieces. Don't let the bronchiolytic who comes in and you're starting moxicillin not get a CBC. Sure. Yeah. Put all the pieces together. And don't let it be heart failure. Yeah. Don't let it be heart failure. No triatrium. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Dr. Davila, thank you so much from both sides of the pager for coming in and talking to us today. Nice to chat with you guys. And thank you for listening to this episode of Pete's Crit. Please remember that all content during this episode is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as replacement for medical advice. The views expressed during this episode by hosts and our guests are their own and do not reflect the official position of their institutions. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at pedscriptpodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at critpeds and at pedscrit on Instagram for real-time show updates. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review in your favorite podcasting application and share with your colleagues. Also, if you'd like to support the making of the podcast, please see the description for Venmo information and how to become a Patreon. Any donation will be appreciated. Thank you again for listening and goodbye.